There have been times in my life, though thankfully not as much recently, where I have been really into energy drinks. You've seen the ones. They have a special section in the drink cooler at the corner store. They boast huge energy boosts through a combination of high caffeine content and assorted other natural and maybe not so natural ingredients that no one can really pronounce. I remember when Red Bull first came to Canada and my eighth grade classroom was instantly a buzz, metaphorically, but also literally. Rumors started flying about this magical drink that came in a small little can that helped you run faster, jump higher, and made you feel unstoppable. Some people even said that stores wouldn't sell it to you unless you were over 18. Well, as the slowest and least athletic kid in my school, the idea of a beverage that could make me less embarrassing in gym class sounded like a dream come true. So I remember biking to the corner store one day, the smaller and sketchier of the two in my small rural village where people were less likely to know me or my parents. I remember going to the back of the store, grabbing the can from the shelf, and terrified that they were gonna ask for my age or ID me, I walked to the cash, shaking like someone who had already downed three whole cans. Now, of course, there were no age restrictions, so I purchased that drink and I went back outside to my bike, excited to taste the magic. Well, to be honest, it tasted kind of funny. And I quickly discovered that any improvements it might make to my athletic ability were largely exaggerated by my classmates. Over the years, more and more brands and flavors came out and I found ones that I actually liked. And I discovered that the energy boost did in fact help me get through many an all night essay session in my university days, years after I had finally been able to leave gym class behind. Now at one point in my journey, as I was standing at the cash register paying for my drink, my curiosity was inevitably drawn to something else. Something even smaller that made an even bigger claim those tiny plastic bottles by the cash with the bright, bold label, Five Hour Energy. Now, I only ever bought one, and it was an experience I don't personally care to repeat. Because like a toddler biting into a lemon wedge, I was immediately punched in the mouth by a wallop of flavor that was so intense, followed by a caffeine rush that was so completely unenjoyable. See, to be able to pack such a big promise into such a small package, each drop needed to be absolutely saturated with content. Well, today, we're starting into our new summer series, Biblical Postcards, and we're looking at some of the smallest books in the entire Bible. But despite their small size, these books are packed full of incredible and important content, content that I'm sure will bring about a much more useful and edifying experience than my teenage caffeine blitz. Today, we're gonna to get started with 2 John. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. 2 John is the second shortest book of the Bible by word count in the original language, and it actually has the least amount of verses of any book in the whole Bible. It's a very small package, but as we're going to see, it has a very big message. As we read through this text today, I want us to keep an eye out for some of the content that John includes in this short 13-verse letter. Specifically, we're going to see a who, what, 
why, and apply. So let's start reading at verse 1. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them will share in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who was chosen by God, send their greetings. And that's it. That's the whole thing. And unless we stop and we pause, we can run the risk of just rushing right through it. So let's take some time today to divide it up. We'll take it just a little bit slower, because there is actually a lot for us to see here. The first three verses make up the introduction of John's letter. And it's here that we find the who. Who is the letter written for, and who is it from? Well, verse 1 starts out with two words, the elder. Now, whether the author is referring to his role in a church or just his advanced years, we don't really know for sure. But study and tradition has led many to believe that this letter was written by the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel account by that name, and the other two epistles, 1st and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. And while he doesn't include all that information in this short little introduction, it is clear that the receiver of this letter knew who the elder referred to. So let's keep reading. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. John doesn't give us all the details here. Who is this lady? What does he mean, chosen by God? So again, we look to clues within the text itself, the way that John wrote, and even some of the other letters he penned. And when we do that, we come to the conclusion that most likely the lady chosen by God and her children refers to a local church and its members. Now, perhaps it was a specific church, or perhaps it was meant to be distributed among several churches. 
Either way, it is written for sure to a group of believers, those who know the truth and whom John loves in the truth because of the truth. I'm sure you're picking up on a theme here, but we'll get back to that a little bit later on. Let's continue into verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Now, this is where things start to get really interesting. Because at first glance, this seems like a pretty standard greeting, like one we might read in one of the letters from Paul or even from Peter. But there are actually four points in this single sentence where John deviates noticeably from Paul's usual patterns. First of all, John includes the word mercy, grace, mercy, and peace, he writes, as opposed to Paul's standard grace and peace. In fact, the only times that Paul includes the word mercy in his greetings are in his two letters to Timothy. Clearly, mercy is an aspect of God's character that John wants to emphasize here. Next, John specifically notes Jesus Christ as the Father's Son, something that Paul often leaves implied. This is an important detail, especially in John's writing, especially in his first letter, in fact, and we're going to see it coming into play a little bit later in this one as well. Third, he adds a tag on the end of the greeting with the phrase, will be with us in truth and love. Truth and love. It seems like that truth word just keeps cropping up. And finally, a big difference here is actually just the phraseology of the entire sentence. While we see in Paul's letters the greeting of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that conveys the idea of a wish or a hope or desire for his readers. But here John's greeting leaves no room for doubt. He says grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It's a greeting of confidence and focus and just the sort of thing that we should expect in a letter that is so short, it has no choice but to get to the point. So what is the point? Well, let's look at the next few verses and find the what of John's letter in verses 4 to 6. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. It's here that we start to get into the meat of the letter. John, writing to a church full of people whom he loves, is focused on two main themes. And we've already seen them, truth and love. In fact, in these first six verses alone, John uses the word truth five times. And in those same six verses, he uses the word love, you guessed it, five times. Now, I promised that we'd talk about John's emphasis on truth, and that's still coming. But let's look for a moment at his emphasis on love. 
Because there's another word here that John connects very closely to it. And it's mentioned four times in these three verses. And that's the word command. He says, just as the Father commanded us, I am not writing you a new command. Walk in obedience to his commands. His command is that you walk in love. John acknowledges in verse 5 that the command to love one another is not a new one, but one that we have had from the beginning. But he clearly thought it important to remind his readers what it means to actually love the way that God commands us to love. And verse 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. For John, the idea of love and obedience to God's commands are completely intertwined. One cannot claim to be fully loving if they are not obedient to God's commands. And one cannot claim to be fully obedient to God's commands if they are not loving. Now, of course, John is not the first one to make this connection. In Romans 13, verses 9 to 10, Paul writes, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, we can't forget about Jesus, who when asked about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verse 36, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What we see here in John's writing, though, is an emphasis on walking. He says walking in the truth, walking in obedience, walking in love. Now, of course, he's not referring to his reader's gait. He doesn't want them to more lovingly trot down the path. But rather, it's about their life. It's their actions. Does their walk match their talk? If they say they are loving, are they demonstrating it in an active way in obedience to God's commands? And this is an important point for us to take in as well, because the command to love is not new for us either. Every Christian, and even most of the non-Christians, know that our faith is supposed to be characterized by love. But the problem is, when we aren't reminded of what biblical, obedient love looks like, we can be susceptible to allowing that love to be defined by the endless voices in our culture that want to do it for us. It's almost comical to me how often people in our society who don't read the Bible and who don't have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ want to tell us what it means for a Christian to be loving. What's not so funny, however, is how often we can allow those cultural and social and societal voices to speak into our faith and invade our churches when we aren't drawing our definitions directly from the pages of scripture. We have got to remember that along with love comes truth. And despite what our culture wants us to believe, truth is not defined by our experiences or our emotions or our feelings. Truth 
and love are defined by God. In his gospel, John recorded Jesus famously saying these words in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just a few verses down in verse 15 to 17, he said, if you love me, keep my commands. Sounds pretty familiar to what we're reading today, does it not? And I will ask the Father, he said, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of, get this, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. John is concerned with truth because God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is concerned with and characterized by truth. The truth that God the Father, in love, sent his son Jesus, who lived the perfect life, willfully submitted to a sinner's death, and raised from the grave so that we can be forgiven of our sins and spend eternity in the presence of a holy God, is paramount to the understanding of love and obedience for every spirit-filled believer. Because as soon as we forget or ignore that, we leave a very risky door open. And it's here that we move to the why of John's letter. Why is he writing? Well, let's keep reading at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Here we see that John is concerned with the well-being of this church when faced with false teachers. Now we learn a little more about these deceivers from John's first letter. It wasn't so much that they denied that Jesus lived or existed as an actual person. We've got to remember this letter was written less than a century after Jesus walked the earth. To deny his very existence would be as ridiculous as you or I denying the existence of Martin Luther King Jr., FDR, or Bing Crosby. But what they refused to acknowledge, and that what they were traveling around preaching, was that Jesus was not God's son. He was not Jesus the Christ, but he was just Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the man. We can perhaps see a little more clearly now why John emphasized Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in his opening greeting. Now, what was difficult for these churches in the first century is that this group was more than likely still preaching as though they were Christians, or at the very least, they were still connected with God. They had likely broken off from a local church and started traveling to preach under the impression that they had come upon new knowledge, a deeper understanding, a more relevant message. Now, it might seem harsh for John to call anyone who taught this way the deceiver and the antichrist. But what else do you call someone who is so clearly preaching a gospel that is false, describing a means of connecting with God that is completely untrue, 
and actively seeking to lead spirit-filled believers away from the truth that they have heard from the beginning. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These deceivers were not making that declaration. And it wasn't just that they believed differently, but they were actively working against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were literally anti-Christ. And it's for this reason that John emphasizes truth and emphasizes love and emphasizes keeping God's commands, commands that his readers have known from the beginning. And this is why it is so important for us to read and study and wrestle with and understand our Bibles. Because if we do not know biblical truth, we can easily be deceived by anything that looks even remotely close to it. Truth is not defined by our culture. It's not defined by what even celebrity pastors are saying or what our Christian friends are posting on social media. Truth is not defined by me. I'm not infallible. But truth is defined by God in his written word and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the living word. And it's right here in this letter of concern for this first century church. As soon as we look to other sources as our primary authority on truth, we are falling for the exact deception that John was warning against. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging. Let's continue on to see how John applies this truth in verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. We see here John laying out two clear imperatives, each with their own explanation. First, he says, watch out. Be aware. Keep your eyes open. Acknowledge the threat to your faith and to your church and intentionally watch out for it. Specifically here, he notes the risk of losing what we have worked for. And he talks about full rewards. And all of this could be referring to a number of different things. All we have to do is think about what this early church could lose if they allowed a false gospel to be preached. They could lose church unity, the spread of the true gospel, their own personal growth and sanctification, and their future rewards for faithfulness. And beyond all of that, they ran the very real risk of allowing people, or perhaps even leading people, to trust in a hope of connection with God that was based completely upon falsehood. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus isn't the Christ, there is no salvation. The stakes were high then, and the stakes are just as high now. As we've said before, our mandate from God as the church is to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. 
And we cannot do any of that to any level of eternal value or success or significance if we are being led astray by false teaching or allowing those outside of the church to define what we teach inside the church. Now, John gives his command, his warning, with an explanation. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That gives us something to look out for. If someone is peddling a message that goes beyond the gospel of Christ and goes beyond the clear teachings of Scripture, perhaps disguised as new revelation or a deeper understanding or a more relevant teaching, at the very least, alarm bells should be going off in our heads. It's not so easy to see, so watch out, he writes. The second imperative has a condition. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is, the teaching of Christ, do not take them into your home or welcome them. Now again here, our 21st century culture of tolerance flags might be going up here. I don't know, that seems pretty harsh, John. It doesn't seem very loving. So what, I shouldn't have unbelievers over for dinner? But we need to remember two key things. First, the God of truth defines love. And so clearly, John, inspired in his writings by the Holy Spirit, cannot be suggesting that his readers act in an unloving way. To do so would be to contradict scripture, and the Bible is infallible. Second, we have to remember the context. John is writing to a church and warning them about the risks and consequences of engaging those whose work is antithetical to the work of the church. He's not talking just about an individual in the church spending time with or even being hospitable to someone who has a different belief system than they do. He's talking about people in the church supporting and encouraging a teaching that is opposed to the gospel. It's about giving these false teachers a platform, giving them a foothold, an opportunity. Remember, at this time, churches met primarily in homes, and they were largely spread by traveling missionaries who relied on the hospitality and support, financially, physically, emotionally, of people within the local church. But these deceivers, John writes about, they are not missionaries of Christ. And to support them would be to share in their wicked work, he explains. And to support such an affront to the truth is not being loving at all to God, to our church, or to any of the people around us. Again, I say, the stakes were high then, and the stakes are high now. In a world and culture that is constantly seeking to slip into, or in some cases, force its way into how we, as the church, view truth, love, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, there's only a little bit left in this letter, so let's read the last couple of verses here and see how John wraps it up. In verse 12, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. In the conclusion here, we see a longing to be together and the joy that it would bring 
a sentiment that I'm sure all of us can relate to right now after weeks and months of isolation and quarantine. The children of your sister refers to a sister church probably where John is writing from, and it acknowledges that the recipients of his letter are not alone in this battle. It's in these two short verses, again, easy to miss, that we can see the importance of togetherness. The struggle to pursue truth and love and to deny false teaching is an ongoing one. And when we are isolated and separated and facing into it alone, that's when we're most vulnerable to an enemy that would love nothing more than to tear us apart and lead us away from the rewards we are promised and the work that we are accomplishing. And so in the time we have left, I want to leave us with three simple tasks, three things we can do, steps we can take to learn from John's writing and apply it to this ongoing battle in our lives. First, surrender to God's authority. Surrender to God's authority. I want you to take a moment today after we conclude to pray to the God of truth. Confess to him the ways and places you have knowingly or unknowingly looked for answers and authority other than him. And ask for the wisdom to understand the truth of his word. That's step one. Step number two is to fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with truth. Find some passages that define what biblical love and biblical obedience actually look like. 1 Corinthians 13, John's first letter, both great places to start. And read them, meditate on them, and ask God to keep them fresh in your mind. And third, we want to praise God. Praise God, because he has made his way known, and he has not left us to figure it out by ourselves. He has provided us with his written word in the scriptures and his living word through the gift of grace and mercy that is his son, Jesus Christ. And he's provided us with a community of believers that are all striving to pursue truth together. So thank him and praise him as the God of all truth, the God of all love, and the God of all authority.